All right, well, that was Saul, and he, or Paul, will be the last individual this morning, this series, that we're going to turn our focus and attention on. So let's pray, and then we're going to hop in, and we're going to look at a ton of Scripture this morning, um, trying to understand what Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, wrote regarding the grace of God. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we, we pray and ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning, that we may understand more of your grace. God, you used this man, you transformed his life miraculously, you, you wrecked him with your grace. He, he was so convinced and so passionately dedicated to, to opposing you. And then you saved him, gloriously, miraculously, made him new. You gave him a new heart, a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone. And you, you used him in, in tremendous and mighty ways to, to herald your gospel, to write about this grace. God, as we turn our focus and attention this morning onto what he has said in his numerous letters. God, again, we pray that you would help us to marvel. Help us to see more of your grace. God, as we think through these eight different aspects, God, certainly there's, there's an element where we desire for all of us collectively to to be exhorted and encouraged and, and strengthened in our faith this morning. But God, I ask even individually for each one here that your spirit would come and, and minister in a specific and unique way through your word. That you would, that you would meet with not just us collectively, but with each one of us individually. And so, God, we, we want to open your word, and we want to look at it, and we want to learn from it, and learn from you through it. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, grab them and turn to Acts 8 and 9. Just going to give you uh, some, some highlights, some flyovers of what happened in this man's life, and then as I mentioned, we're going to look at a ton of scriptures this morning, and what we're going to do is we're going to just highlight and try to understand uh, things regarding God's grace from the hand, the pen, of this man, Paul, who was used by God to write numerous books of the Bible to many different people and churches and used the word grace more than any other New Testament author. So the majority of the New Testament understanding of grace that we have, even the usage of the word grace, comes from the Apostle Paul. And so he alone is responsible for using the word grace 64% of the time that the New Testament would use that word. It's 88 different times throughout all of his letters the word grace shows up. Now we're not looking up every one of those this morning. 
We're going to look at eight different aspects of God's grace that he writes about. But if we would even include Luke in this list, because Luke was a very close companion of Paul. He was his travel partner and wrote regarding the ministry and travels and missionary journeys of Paul. That list of usages or times the word grace is used actually then goes from 64 to about 80%. So these two guys who were related very, very closely in their ministry and in proximity and in what God was having them do together account for about 80%, about 79% of the usages of the word grace. So there's a wealth of information here that God gives us. But in Acts chapter 8, you have very, very dramatically happening the stoning of Stephen. And Luke records for us in Acts 8 that Paul was there and giving approval of his execution. And then the church begins to be persecuted and it has to get spread out. And God used that event in the stoning of Stephen to spread out his church, which at this point had been geographically located in Jerusalem, so that what he had told the apostles in Acts chapter 1, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, would then actually begin to happen. God used this moment of persecution from this man named Saul and the other religious rulers who were infuriated at Stephen to spread out his church so that they would begin to carry this gospel witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then you have Philip encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a tremendous story that we're not going to have our focus and attention on this morning. But then you get to Acts 9, and Saul is on the road to Damascus. And he is seeking and desiring nothing more than to imprison, if not see other Christ followers killed. He was a Pharisee. He at times in his letters will say, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. It's been said before that he was probably the poster child of the Pharisees. His zeal was exceeding all others, and he wanted nothing more than to stop the spread of this good news in the name of Jesus and was willing to do whatever it took to see that accomplished. Well, he is radically and gloriously saved by God's grace. And God knocks him off his horse, appears to him. Jesus speaks to him, blinds him, saves him, and tells him to go find Ananias. And then Jesus appears to Ananias in a dream and says, Hey, I want you to go find this guy named Saul on Straight Street and go bring him back to your house. And I just found myself thinking this past week, as I, as I have other times, what would that be like in our context? Okay, so you have a, a known persecutor of Christians. All right, there's probably a few different people groups in the world today that we could give examples of that fit that. They, they are known to kill Christians. If given the opportunity, there's the gun, there's the knife, life is done, that's what they live for. And all of a sudden, Ralph brings them to church. Hey, this guy appeared after I was given a vision by God that told me to go to the edge of my driveway and pick up this person and bring him back to my house. And then he was blind for a couple days, but we, we talked and prayed, and then like scales fell from his eyes, and, and now he's confessing Jesus is Lord, and so like it seemed like bringing him to church was a good idea. 
Like, what, what would we do there? How would we react there? I, I, I think we'd collectively be a little nervous. We might have to ask Eli to frisk him at the door. But that's this scene. God sends this man, Saul, this known persecutor of Christians, to a known disciple, and then that man vouches for him within the Christian community, and Saul just continues to confess Jesus as Lord. It's just an amazing story. Well, the rest of the book of Acts really then tracks through and accounts for this man's life, specifically the missionary journeys that he took. He took three different missionary journeys. Some of you look at the maps in the back of your Bible when you get bored on Sunday morning, so you might be familiar with this map. It's a map of his missionary journeys. You can turn to the back of the Bible if you want and just kind of trace through. You probably have a copy there. But Acts 13 and 14 records his first missionary journey. There's a transition from the, really the life and ministry of Peter to the life and ministry of Paul around that mark of Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 13. And then really Peter largely drops from the scene as Luke records it. And it really picks up almost exclusively onto the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We have his second missionary journey happening then with Acts 15 to 18. It was during that missionary journey that it's believed he probably wrote, uh, I'm sorry, no, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians and it's in the third missionary journey that he would have wrote and written the book of Philippians, Acts 18 to 20. He ends up being imprisoned in Rome. He writes several letters that are called the prison letters while he is imprisoned. Philippians is one of them where we'll turn our attention to next week. But this man had a zeal that transformed from a passion for killing Christians to wanting nothing more than to tell people about Christ. So this morning, what we want to do is just highlight what he writes about in regards to God's grace. So we're going to look at eight different aspects that he shines the spotlight on. God's redeeming and saving grace. His calling grace. Those two are very closely related. God's transforming grace. His strengthening grace. His gifting grace, His abounding grace, His sufficient grace, and His empowering grace. So there's where we're going this morning in the next several minutes. So let's begin just thinking through God's redeeming and saving grace. Paul was very, very mindful of who he had been when writing about and thinking about the work of God's grace in his life. And he never shies away from it. And so he writes to Timothy, serving at the church of Ephesus, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's here talking about the saving grace he received and how it was undeserved because formerly he had and was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He oftentimes will just very, quite frankly, own who he was. So I didn't deserve this, but God came and he gave this to me, this amazing 
grace. We're well familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He continues in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us, that we should walk in them. So in regards to God's redeeming and saving grace, Paul, is, it, it, he doesn't shy away from the fact that he didn't deserve it. In fact, quite everything opposite would be and was true. But God gave him his grace. He poured out his grace on him. Well, closely related to that was God's calling grace in his life. And he writes about that in Galatians 1, 11 to 16. And you could continue this passage all the way up into verse 23. And just think about what Paul writes as it relates to what took place after Ananias brought him to the believing community. Then Paul was, was ushered away by God for three years and placed in the desert and then specifically instructed on these things by Jesus himself. I mean, he writes about this in Galatians 1, and then it's how he comes back in Acts 13 and begins this missionary journey, and then later is accepted into the, the uh, community by John and Peter, who we presume to be pillars in the church. I and mean, all of this is in regards to this man's salvation and how the church and the apostles were trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? This guy who had violently opposed the cause of Christ, is now saying he wants to go and promote the cause of Christ. What do we do with him? Well, the church did some things, and they, they worked through that, and it's recorded. But in regards to God's calling grace, Paul writes here, For, what have, for I would have known, have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God, violently tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles." Closely related to God's redeeming and saving grace is God's calling grace that God had a plan for Paul's life. And he had set him apart before he was born. He called him by his grace. He was pleased to reveal Christ Jesus to him for the purpose and plan that he might go and preach among the Gentiles. God's calling grace is on display in the life of Paul he speaks about that, and he, again, in this passage, does not shy away from who he once was. It's as part of his story. He's willing to own it because it magnifies the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ all the more because he's continually and consistently saying, I don't deserve this, but he has given it to me, and he's done so in order that I might go and preach among the Gentiles. Well, thirdly, God's transforming Grace. There's a lot of different ways that we see God's grace transforming Paul. We've already, in some ways, looked at two different ways as he wrote about it in 1 Timothy and in Galatians. But there's a specific way that I want to just highlight God's transforming grace in this man's life from Ephesians 2. 
And this transforming grace that God had led and used in Paul's life led him from a place of zealous nationalism for the people of Israel, for the Jews, to a place of understanding and willingness to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is huge. And I'm not sure we understand how huge it is, or we could fully understand how huge it is. But, but tied up in this idea of who the gospel is for, is it for just the Jews, or is it for all people from all nations, of all races and walks of life, is this idea of who gets access to God. We don't have time this morning to walk through all of that, but at this stage in the game, before before Jesus came, the prevailing understanding that access to God was restricted to one man once a year and only by blood sacrifice. That man being the high priest who would go into God's holy of holy place in the temple and offer atonement for sins. That was the only person who had access to God, And everybody else was on the fringes, and you had then different courts in the temple which restricted even the access that certain people had to the proximity of the holy of holy place. And the leading understanding, and I think what Paul would have had in his own heart and mind, was that the gospel, not even the gospel, access to God, a relationship with God, is only for the Jewish people. And he writes about this in Ephesians 2. He writes about how his understanding has transformed as a result. He writes about in Ephesians 3 a mystery that's now been revealed. Well, the mystery that was hidden that has now been revealed is that the gospel is for all peoples. It is not just for the Jews. And so in regarding access and who can come into God's presence and, and, and all of these things, he speaks and writes in Ephesians 2 to say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's writing to the Gentile believers in this church in Ephesus, those who were not Jews, to say, Look, you guys at one point in the Old Covenant were far off. You could only come so far physically into the temple courts and you weren't even able to come the whole way because you weren't circumcised and you didn't have all of the traditions and commandments that we have as God's chosen people from the old covenant. But you now have been brought near. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances. That dividing wall Paul speaks of, he probably has in mind a literal four-foot wall that would have surrounded parts of the temple that would have kept the Gentiles out. You couldn't go past that wall if you were not Jewish. So there was a, literally a wall there. But Paul's saying, look, he's broken down this wall. This wall's got spiritual ramifications, most certainly, but it was physically represented by this wall that existed in the temple courts. Jesus has broken down this wall that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul's saying, look, at one point there, there was two, but now in Christ Jesus there is one. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. God's grace transformed this man's understanding as it related to who God would even accept. And it was no longer just the Jewish people. It was anyone who would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, and these things matter more maybe for us right now in these weeks Not than they ever have, but they are right back in the front and center of our news and in our world. See, Paul's saying very clearly in Ephesians 2, look, there is not one race that gets the gospel. There is not one ethnicity that gets the gospel. Jesus didn't come for one particular skin color Yeah, there may have been at one point in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, those who had been far off, but in Christ he has brought them near. Which, quite frankly, folks, was very, very clearly revealed in the Old Testament. And these leading Pharisee Jews just kind of missed it. And in Romans 15, Paul actually talks about that and says, let me quote from you the Old Testament and tell you how it's clearly revealed that Christ was coming for all and the gospel was for all. Let me just be really clear here that any declaration of racial superiority is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot say that you understand the gospel and believe that it is only for one color of skin. I wrote on Monday in this email, there was probably a whole lot more I could have said, but we were confronted with the reality that this isn't just a Charlottesville thing, it's a Waynesboro thing. I read that and I was shocked and I was appalled. I don't know if you, I don't know if you read it, I didn't read a lot, I didn't. I mean, I read some of it in depth, and the first couple of sentences just really stuck out to me. But the first line said this, Adam was the first human born 5,000 years ago. And a couple lines later, it said, though African and Asian people have been around for a million years. You see what was just said there? That African and Asian people aren't human? That humanity started at a particular point in time and didn't include African and Asians? And for the first time, I interacted with that type of evil as a dad of an Asian kid. 
And I read that, and I was like, no. My son is human. My son bears the image of God. He was created in the image of God. This idea that Scripture supports a declaration of racial superiority is from the pit of hell. And it is a lie, and it must be rejected by anyone who claims the name of Christ. And we must be very careful with who we would stand with or support if they believe the same. There's too much at stake. Eternity's at stake, folks. The consequences are far greater than monuments and elections. It's eternity. You're talking about either the presence of God forevermore or hell. Who cares who wins the next election? There's a lot riding on what we do with this gospel and how we see this live out. And the gospel is going to be the only long-term solution to these things. So we live in a nation that welcomes us to be a part of this political process. So let's engage. I mean, let's do it. Let's get in there. Let's be a voice. But let's not pretend that laws are going to change the wickedness of man's hearts. Let's, let's make good laws. But let's also be really good at this declaring the gospel thing. Because that's what's going to change hearts. And this man, Paul, is an example of that. He had all the laws possible. But his heart wasn't changed. His heart was still wicked. And here's the other thing I just want to always continually keep before you is that when darkness is at its darkest, that is when light shines the brightest. So we should recognize the darkness, should be willing to call it out for what it is. We should not be surprised at the darkness. But we should also be hopeful that when darkness is at its darkest, that is when light shines the brightest. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now he didn't say this, but we would all sing the song, hide it under a bushel. No, going to let it shine. So let's let our light shine before all men so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is a place where our world needs bright, shining lights. You may have the opportunity, you may be aware of people or even to just go and offer to them a conversation to say, look, there's a, there's a whole lot of things going on in the news and in the world today. Let me tell you, there's a lot of claims that, that the Bible supports 
racial superiority, nothing is further from the truth. People may need to hear that. It's a lot of twisted evil things. Well, Paul shines the spotlight also on God's strengthening grace. He's writing again to Timothy, pastor, elder in the church of Ephesus. It's a difficult place to minister. Timothy's had a couple of his own elders abandon the faith and try and sway and steal people from the church and lead them astray. And he writes in 2 Timothy this call for Timothy to stand fast and not give in to the pressure and be willing to make the hard calls and say what needs to be said. And he writes in chapter 2 verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This will be the most technical we get this morning, but that word strengthened, that verb that Paul uses there, he writes that word in a present passive imperative form. So let's define those words for you. If you're taking notes, you'll love this here. All right, presence, present, do it now. Passive, receive, imperative, it's a command. Okay, so that's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I command you now and continually to receive strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Put your eyes on the gospel. Put your eyes on God's grace. Put your focus there. You have days that are hard and days that you want to give up. Remind yourself and remember the gospel. Very similar ideas to what he wrote to Titus, who was serving on the island of Crete. Chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So, Titus, here's a trustworthy saying. Think about the gospel. Here it is in a nutshell. You were saved, not because you did anything, but because Christ did everything. Think about those things. Tell others to continually think about those things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There is a connection between our strength and resolve to be the workmanship of Jesus Christ that we were created beforehand to be and our focus on the gospel, our focus on God's grace. And when we have days that we're discouraged, struggling, we're to be strengthened by His grace, put our focus on His grace, and receive strength from that as we think about these trustworthy sayings. 
we think about the gospel. God's grace strengthens. Not only does God's grace strengthen, God gifts by His grace. And we talked a little about a little bit about this several weeks ago. And again, we're not going to try to define a list of spiritual gifts. We're just highlighting the fact that God has given gifts by His grace and according to His grace. And so you see there in Romans 12, 6, for the grace, or for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Almost identical to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we put the spotlight on several weeks ago, that you know what, the giftings that God gives should lead us to realize that there are different giftings in the body. Not everybody's an ear, not everybody's an eye, not everybody's a nose. Everybody has been given a gift that it believes in Jesus Christ, but it's not all the same gift. And we're not to think more highly of ourselves because of our gift or more lowly of somebody else because of their gift. We're to recognize that God has given us gifts And seek to serve in his grace in a way that honors him with the gift we've been given. And so Paul continues. Having gifts, and the reason I have that bolded is because the word there is most literally translated grace gifts. That differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So God has given you different gifts. His grace has given you different grace gifts. Use them. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, Now there are a variety of grace gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a variety of services, but the same Lord. A variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And the point in those two passages is the same. Do not think more highly of yourself or more lowly of somebody else because you have different gifts. Serve in a way that honors the Lord for the gift He's given you. So God's grace gives gifts. and He gives us gifts by His Spirit. Next, God's grace abounds. And specifically here, Paul is talking about the activity of giving and giving generos- generously. He writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in regards to giving and collecting of money so that ministries can can function and the gospel can go forth. And he writes this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The idea there is that God gives what we need to go be generous, joyful givers. As it is written, He has distributed freely. And he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul is saying, look, there there is this relationship that exists between our generosity and willingness to be generous to God's work and God's abounding grace to provide to us all that we need. And I know some of you have this story because you have told me specifically you have this story, but Carrie and I have this story. From the beginning days of our marriage, it was 10% off of our gross pay goes to God. And it went up from there. And we have never lacked or wanted a single thing. Now, I'm not promising you this morning that this passage says if you give $10, God's going to have 100 in your bank account tomorrow morning. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you have a heart that is resolved to give generously to the Lord, you will find yourself never in need. And it may be that God uses his people to provide for you, or it may be that he provides a job for you that provides for you. I mean, he, his provision can come in a multitude of ways. I'm not drawing one-to-one corollaries here. It's not give $1,000 this morning and get that promotion tomorrow. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God has promised to give us his abounding grace. And everyone I know who has ever made the determination to give God the first fruits has never had want or need. Well, maybe they have want, but you know, I, there's a couple things I want that I probably shouldn't. So let's go with need. Because His grace abounds. His grace abounds. And what's the point? What's the point of His grace abounding to me? Well, I'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving. So God's going to give me what I need to go be generous so that I can say with those who receive, praise God. Glory belongs to Him. And here's what's really neat as I stand back and, and we were talking about this a few nights ago at our elder board meeting on Thursday. We rejoice at this happening in our midst right now. Last year, we were preparing for a town hall meeting to happen the Sunday that piercing word came, where we were going to talk about the reality that we were 12,000 real dollars in the hole, and we were projecting to end the year 26,000 real dollars in the hole. And it was amazing to just watch some of you sacrificially give. Some of you gave the two small copper coins. Others of you gave much more than that. But we rejoice at all of it done in obedience. And we ended the year $93 in the black. That gap shrunk. But I stand here today to tell you we're in the black now. And you have given in seven months this year 
what you gave in eight months last year. And it's just awesome to watch. It's awesome to see that. And some of that's going to be reflected in the July financial summaries that are in your boxes that you can grab on the way out and take a peek at. So let's praise God for that. But let's, I mean, but let's lean on Him that, that He enriches us in every way to be generous in every way. Let's lean on that. I mean, let's pour gas on this fire so that we may have more thanksgiving and give more glory to God for His work in and through us. So all year the elders have been praying that we would end the year with $155,000 given to current expenses. And that surpasses what our budget needs are. It would probably surpass what our tracked expenses look like by about $20,000. But we're excited about what that might allow us to do and where we might be able to go. Let's lean on God. I mean, let's pour gas on this fire, church. But let's also praise Him for where we're at. It's a great place to be. And I don't think we've had an August where we've been in this spot until now since I've been here. This is a lot of fun. Let's keep pouring gas on this fire that we are enriched by Him to be generous so that we might praise Him and give thanksgiving to Him. Well, God's grace is sufficient. He's sufficient to us by His grace in those moments of need, in those moments of tremendous difficulty, in those moments that hurt, in the moments that we wonder why, in the moments that we pray that He would alleviate what might be ailing us or the situation we might be in, but it doesn't seem as if the relief comes or in the way that we would desire Paul writing about what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Nobody's really sure what it is. It might have been his eyesight. It might have been something other else with his physical body. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. But he does tell us that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. You have something it's just not right, and you're pleading with the Lord to fix it, to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is, this is a hard one. You see God's grace and its sufficiency for us to be powerful when we're weak. As the we had our focus and attention on the book of James last fall. We got to James chapter 5 in probably about November or so. 
And I gave an invitation to any and all of you, because of the text and what James says, to ask for the elders to pray for you and to anoint you and to ask God for your healing. And we've had the opportunity to do that a couple different times. I'm not here to tell you about the results of those, but I want to tell you about what we prayed for. And when we were in those rooms, we anointed the one asking for prayer with oil, what we asked God to do. Because I think it's a, a complete look at what the scriptures teach about this and how Paul's instruction about God's sufficient grace ties in with this. We prayed firstly for their faith to be strengthened and for steadfastness to grow in the midst of their trial. I believe that James 1 says that God gives us trials to grow our faith and increase our steadfastness. We want to recognize that. I want to ask that this trial may do exactly that. Secondly, we prayed specifically that God would heal that they would walk out of that room and no longer have what they walked into the room with. We believe we serve a God who is that big and powerful to do that, and He's commanded us to, by faith, come before Him and ask for that. And thirdly, we prayed for God's will to be done and for His glory to be manifested through their healing miraculously, their healing through medicine or his continual sustaining through the trial of ongoing sickness. And we've actually seen all three. But I think all three critically have to be there. Because God's grace is sufficient. He never took Paul's thorn away. Paul goes, all right. I'm going to boast in my weakness because it just makes you all the more strong on my behalf. So I'll extend that same invitation again to any of you. The scriptures say, if anyone's sick, let him call, let her call the elders to be anointed and prayed for. And if that's you, you have an invitation to come and call us. And we will pray those things specifically for you. God's sufficient in His grace, and He gives us what we need. Lastly, God's grace empowers. His grace is empowering. So Paul writes again about who he once was, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. God's grace is empowering. God's grace is the reason why there is growth, why the reason is the reason why there is change. Earlier in this same letter to the church in Corinth, Paul said, It is I who watered, it was Apollos who planted, or I who planted, and Apollos who watered, but it's God who gives the growth. 
Therefore, he who plants or he who waters doesn't really matter at all, but God who gives the growth. And he returns to this idea. He writes to the church in Corinth and said, I worked hard. I worked hard. You can go back into those early sections in the book of Acts. And if you start at about Acts, uh, well, you can start about 9. and You're going to get some Peter in there. But when you keep going, it eventually give way to Paul. If you kind of look at what happened in his life between Acts 9 and Acts 18, you're going to get a glimpse at the events that took place that would have happened before he wrote this letter. So we're talking about stonings. We're talking about him being snuck out of town because he was being threatened. We're, we're talking about one time when he was actually stoned. The only reason everybody stopped stoning him was because they thought he was dead. And so everybody just walked away thinking they had done the job. And then his travel companions and fellow believers came and actually found that he was still alive. And didn't take him back, but moved him on to somewhere else. He writes and says, I, I worked hard. But you know what? It really wasn't me. It was God's grace in me. So church, this needs to be this tension that we live in. That we're going to work hard. We're going to do what it needs to be done. And we're going to do it with passion. We're going to do it with zeal. And we're going to do it with perseverance. And we're going to do it with conviction. And we're going we're gonna to continually Work hard, but at the very same time, we're going to recognize that it's God's grace, and His grace is the reason that there's growth, and His grace is the reason why any of this happens, because His grace is empowering, His grace is amazing. Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be us. We've looked at so many things this morning, but just in regards to your empowering grace, that 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 would be true of us as as a people, as a church. You would find in us, collectively in the sum of our parts, a people willing be very committed and purposeful to what you've called us to. This mission of making disciples. And God, we pray that you'd give us the, the, the strength and encouragement we need to, to work hard and the recognition that it's not really us doing any of it. But it's you through us. So God, we pray for that. Pray that that may be true of us this coming school year, this coming year of Grace Family. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.